Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Doomer Optimism podcast. Uh, today, we have Andrew at underscore St. Drew on Twitter and Andrewism on YouTube. Um, Andrew, uh, I, you came across my attention. Uh, somebody recommended you for the podcast. Um, I looked up your content on YouTube. I've been digging into it. I think your your content is great. Uh, just really quality. Thank you. Stuff. Yeah, and you just cover such a wide range of topics, um, you know, very comprehensively, and also it's very entertaining as well, right? It's not just information; it's very, it's also very entertaining. Um, so, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate being here and being able to engage in this conversation. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, so, why don't we start by you just kind of introducing yourself, your background, as much as you want to reveal, of course, um, and kind of. You know the kind of evolution of of your political consciousness and your activity and and kind of what you're up to and what you're aiming for sure so um i'm andrew uh first and foremost uh grew up well born raised grew up still living in trinidad and tobago um it's the southernmost caribbean country unless you count in guyana um i I've really just been into like I've I've always been a very curious person, very knowledge explore, uh, information explorative sort of person, um, and when I eventually began learning about you know climate change that kind of thing, um, it really was sort of opened that door into other elements of politics. Uh, prior to that, I was. Um, due to my upbringing, leaning a bit conservative, um, but due to a variety of factors, including um, my move away from religion um, and my pursuit of uh, socialist and anarchist politics is when I really started to get into um, what I am now, which is an anarchist. Um, I think one of the main driving forces for me has been sort of the existential reality of my generation of, of climate change and of really the social and economic uh, pressures that we are under and, you know, millennials are under um, as a result of the machinations of capitalism and the state. And so that has really driven me to want to learn as much as possible about the issues that currently exist and also to explore um, the solutions, because I think one of the main uh, mistakes uh, that, that some some make um, that probably lends them more to the doomerism side than the optimism side um, or the realism side even is a hyper focus on the negatives and the downfalls and the pitfalls uh, not so much the solutions that are being put into place that exist that people around the world are pursuing to make life a bit better, to mitigate the worst consequences, to carve out uh, a new world in the shell of the old. And so that is really what I try to point people towards um, through my work and just something that I generally try to focus on in my life so that I don't get dragged down by, you know, everything. Right, right. Yeah, that's kind of our approach as well, where we don't want to be naive or have rose-colored glasses on of what's really 
going on in the world. And that's where the doomerism part comes in. But it's a recognition that you can't stop there. Uh, you know, doomerism itself is fatalistic. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so, you exactly. know, there needs to be a pragmatic vision forward. Uh, and maybe this can be uh, a gateway into, um, we recently had uh, Anarch on the podcast who's, and we talked about uh, anarchism and this idea of, of prefiguration of starting to, you know, create the society that we want to see in the world, you know, crafting the new and the shell of the old, as you said. Um, do you want to kind of talk about what that looks like for you just on a personal level, but also a community level and then a broader network, uh, networks that you're a part of? So I suppose on a personal level, um, what I'm doing to prefigure has really been focused in my own backyard um, with my own garden and really taking it seriously in particular this year, trying to develop uh, my skills, trying to, well, I've, I've done some courses in, in gardening, permaculture, and really trying to pursue that and develop my understanding of that so that I could share that um, with others and slowly develop the broader food autonomy my focus is really um on permaculture and that sort of thing at this point in time uh however i know that there are other aspects um that that need to be pursued as well on a personal level i've also um been a part of and founded various um small scale you know organizations reading groups book clubs that sort of thing to sort of spread uh consciousness um, and in the long term, I think one of my main focuses would be to establish some sort of space for education and outreach and food autonomy um, in on this on this island and really in the region as a whole. Um, but I know that's not all that there is that can be done. It's just what I believe my focus needs to be. Yeah. Um, on the broader sort of community level and and above. Um, I know that at least on the prefigurative side, there is a lot that needs to be done. It's, you don't exactly build a whole new world in, you know, the flip of a switch or the snap of the fingers. Um, it takes a lot to transform people's powers, drives, and consciousness in ways that are conducive to anarchic social change. Powers being, you know, people's capacity to do or to be, which is determined by their natural, uh, historical, and social context. Because of the situation we've been placed in, people do not have the ability to self-manage because that has been that hasn't been taught. In fact, that has been um, taught out of them, um, and so it needs to be relearned um, and developed. Those skills and powers need to be developed in order to organize horizontally and spread this form of organization to others. Um, and in doing so, we would develop and appreciate um, those free and equal social relations and enhance our drives to pursue them even further because the drives that we have are shaped by our social context and of course our consciousness our understanding of the world around us um, to assess the world around us to orient ourselves in the world around us and to change the world around us is also quite vital in just the practice of prefigurative politics um, i think of course mutual aid networks are a crucial component in that um and that really takes various forms. I think in some cases, the term mutual aid has been used to just seem more enlightened or like a more enlightened form of charity. 
when in reality the practice is just charity. But mutual aid is uh, more expansive and more in-depth and more collaborative than charity uh, is. And I think I, I really hope that people are able to really dig into the depth of what mutual aid can be rather than just limiting itself to the um, sort of dimensions of charitable work and the sort of NGO space. Um, I think survival programs are also important to help to feed and house people. Um, popular assemblies, as we've seen again and again, have been an essential part of the um, revolutionary momentum of the masses in, in you know, creating and developing and conceiving um, new social relations and new systems and getting involved in direct decision-making over the uh, things that affect us directly. Um and of course, how that manifests will take on different forms. Um, I think there's a sort of a meme of like, anarchists just want everybody to be in meetings all day. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think there's, it's important to have that sort of free association element of it, to have um, people, to maintain people's choice to engage or to disengage, to have their say or to not have their say. Um, really maintain that those affected by a situation should be the ones to make a decision on it um, and to also have the flexibility to allow for other forms of decision making when the situation may call for it um, and so I, I do talk about that a bit in my channel I do intend to talk about that even further in the future um, but we've seen uh, popular assemblies in Argentina in Mexico um, you know during the Paris Commune uh, during the Spanish Revolution, there have been many such successes of popular assemblies. And I do believe that it is uh, crucial, it is a pillar of any sort of successful prefigurative movement. Um, another element of it, another crucial pillar, I would say, um, would be the development of food autonomy um, through whether it be you know, urban agriculture, community sports agriculture, permaculture, all of those things working together to develop people's um, ability to feed themselves and to care for themselves separate from the whims of the market. And I think part of that sort of, you know, crop share initiative would have to be things like, uh, you know, farmers cooperatives and other kinds of workers cooperatives, which I think are also essential. Of course, there are limitations under the current structure of the capitalist market economy, but they do have a place. I would also say the commons are another crucial component because the deprivation of the commons, the removal of the commons, the enclosure of the commons is really what put us in the situation in the first place. It's one of the elements that developed modern capitalism. Um, they removed access to common resources, to common land, um, and other such arrangements of land access, access to the means of subsistence, in order to force people um into arrangements with um capitalists and landlords right right um i'm curious so we're having this conversation you know i i live uh in the united states um and you you know you you're putting out you have a you know a twitter account and, and you have this the the youtube channel um and so there's definitely kind of a broader network building um and it and this is definitely also an affordance that wasn't available say 20 or 30 years ago and i'm, I'm curious right. what you think about kind of this affordance of this new digital technology uh 
uh, in kind of helping along this prefigurative politics, especially, you know, in terms of like global solidarity um, that, that wasn't there in the past. Like, are you hopeful? Obviously there's, you know, uh, many things wrong with the internet in terms of the ownership structures right now. Uh, it, it's it's very much a capitalistic ownership structure for the most part. Uh, but there's also, you know, kind of this new Web3 movement that is very much geared towards peer-to-peer -to -peer kind of uh, networking and decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs, things of that nature. Um, curious your thoughts on, yeah, how how this new technology uh, can be used, you know, can can give, a, you know, the movement a leg up uh, to, uh, compared to, you know, what was possible, say, 30 years ago? Um, so I'm definitely of the belief that when it comes to the internet, there's, there's, there's a lot of potential. There's also, of course, a lot of risk associated with that because of the sort of disconnection. I mean, we did evolve as a social species, as a face-to-face -face species. Um, that sort of facial expression, body language, or the understanding, and just, you know, just sort of connection um, can be lost on the internet. And I think that's why it's been so easy for people to sort of lose their empathy and ability to engage with people in good faith um, online. However, that aside, Online is really a powerful space. Um, the internet is really a powerful space that will allow us to connect across vast distances like never before to um, really um, grow in solidarity with one another like never before. Um, obviously, you know, digital inclusion, privatization, you know, the rise of tech monopolies, artificial scarcity, all those things have hampered the potentials of the internet but much like i speak about my library economy video um there's also a lot of potential a lot of unrealized possibilities within the internet to bring us closer together um as for how it relates specifically to international solidarity so i think as we've seen in the protests of 2020 that really went global against police brutality, um, you know, from Colombia to Nigeria to the US to Canada to Ethiopia. There have been a lot of uprisings um, and protests and movements of a whole as a whole over the 20th century, over the 21st century that have been defined by the use of, you know, technology of the internet to connect people, to um, assist, to pressure for the release of various political prisoners and this age of communication has a lot of potential um i think one of the most effective ways that we can develop these sort of solidarity networks um first and foremost an understanding of the cultural differences and uh linguistic differences between people and understanding of the boundaries that would be necessary to establish and um, develop in, in those sorts of interactions um, and also to, how do I say this? I think the most important uh, element of developing, um, you know, international solidarity would be online, at least, would be to make sure it does not remain online. You know, make sure that 
that solidarity does not exist solely in terms of expressing verbal support, but that support also flows um, materially, you know, physically, um, financially, if necessary. Yeah, I was going to say that's one of kind of the movements or trends that I'm pretty bullish on is this thing called cosmolocalism, which is this idea where you kind of have this global commons of information and design, um, you know, so oftentimes it's thought of in terms of like manufacturing, for example, for like distributed technology, kind of DIY, say, small scale tractors or you know, other machinery where all of like this- what, um, Like what open source ecology is doing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and there's a whole movement. So open source ecology is one of the premier examples of what they're developing. And then, um, yeah, and, uh, a fellow named Michelle, Michelle Bowens, uh, he put out a report called Peer-to-Peer -Peer Commons Manifesto that tries to, and many others as well, uh, that try to kind of lay out what are kind of the design protocols for for basically encouraging both local autonomies and and kind of diversity you know of expressions so you know having a pluralistic kind of expression of culture and place uh so it has this like localist element but then it also has kind of the cosmopolitan elements of exchange of knowledge and information and culture when appropriate, um, when, you know, that's a free exchange of, of, of cultural elements. And so um, right. it's a pretty, you know, it, it's one of those movements that couldn't have been possible without uh, the advent of the internet. And it's still really not, you know, it hasn't really achieved its mature form yet. Um, but it seems, uh, at least to me, it seems uh, pretty hopeful. Yeah, it really is exciting to see. And of course, open source ecology hasn't completed their project yet. They're still very much in the early stages of developing that global village construction set, but it is exciting to see. And it's definitely something that I hope to be able to utilize um, in the future. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's um, switch gears a little bit to um, to Solarpunk. And, you know, Solarpunk is kind of, a vision of the way forward. Uh, do you want to talk about Solarpunk, kind of how you, what you make of the movement, uh, what inspires you about it, as well as you know what criti any critiques that you might have? Sure. So Solarpunk is essentially a movement and a vision and an aesthetic and a genre um, that sort of looks to a positive shining vision of the future uh, aesthetic and practical that is mainly focused on bridging the chasm between the human society and natural world and using technology in ways that can facilitate that connection rather than cut us off from that connection um it has a lot of emphasis on sustainability on social justice, on autonomy. And of course, those things have made it very attractive to various anti-capitalist movements, made it very attractive to me, uh, even prior to my full exploration and um, and then sort of delve into anarchism. So punk was always something I was very much interested in. Um, and I think it is a very powerful sort of um, tool 
or vision because of how attractive it is. People who have you know fallen into the trap of doomerism have come and you know, you know they've told me that the vision of soul punk has motivated me to move forward i think one of the great losses of the 21st century is the fact that we've lost a sense of a future of a future to work towards of some sort of vision some sort of positive vision of utopia to strive towards and soul punk in a sense offers that of course soul punk isn't perfect not every manifestation of it is perfect and in fact there are certain mistakes that people who pursue sort of punk people in the climate movement and stuff sort of fall into. Um, a lot of sort of punk aesthetics, like the most uh, popular visuals of sort of punk, um, some of that I've ended up using myself, though I would now say that they were flawed, would be there is a bit of greenwashing in sort of punk, um, at least in the visual side of sort of punk. It is something that has begun to be critiqued. Um, people have begun to critique that aspect of some of the manifestations and ideas behind it. But because it's not a centralized movement, it is something that some people will still uh, sort of fall into. Um, but whether it be in, you know, agriculture and fashion and architecture, um, solar punk artwork has a habit of sometimes falling into that sort of greenwashing thing that sort of falls into popular notions of greenness, puts forward like an environmentally friendly image. But, you know, it's like green shrubbery and stuff on concrete skyscrapers. It's not necessarily actually ecological. It just looks pretty. Um, I think also there is a habit in some cases, in some segments of the solar punk movement, I suppose, to sort of overly optimistically embrace technology, even where it is not necessary, even where... Um, and particularly high technology, quote unquote, um, even where low technology um, may, and low tech, you know, DIY solutions may be more effective, indigenous solutions may be more effective than, you know, some of the methods that are put forward. You know, we have to be conscious of the limitations of the planet, of the limitations of, you know, um, our access to rare earth minerals and metals and, not wanting to perpetuate the exploitative labor conditions that produce many of these technologies. Um, and so I think an over-reliance and overly optimistic embrace of technology can be an occasional pitfall of the solar punk movement. And of course, um, as is just across the broad, uh, of course, there will be people within solar punk who sort of fall into this soft climate change denial. Um, I think it's the standard really across the environmental movement as a whole, but it's a state of mind that acknowledges the existence of climate change, but is kind of in denial about its reality or its impact. It, it, it's understandable that people fall into that because I mean, the scientists who study climate change are largely very depressed. Um, but I think it's, it's a mistake to sort of cordon off, um, such emotionally challenging information from the rest of our mind. We need to engage with the scope of the crisis and in order to imagine a path forward, in order to mitigate. Um, and I think when people miscalculate the risks um, or neglect the existential urgency or underestimate the extent of social change required because a lot of people are very, you know, centrist status quo, um, it, it leads to a 
toothless um, and middling approach to climate movements uh, uh, and a very limited vision of what solar punk can be. But I think avoiding those sorts of limitations will enable solar punk to be a very effective force in mobilizing people, in particular young people who, you know, have seen the potentials of, you know, things like walkable cities and the beauty of um, natural environments and the sort of general aestheticization of um, young people's approach to life, this generation's approach to life, um, due to the sort of sense of us being constantly uh, in performance. Um, having that sort of aesthetic vision, I think, is is going to be crucial in pushing people forward. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, a trap that the environmentalist movement falls into is actually two things. It is one, as you said, kind of <clears throat> not really grappling with the extent of the the problem such that we can kind of just continue business as usual, but try and say unplug fossil fuels and plug in renewable energy and, you know, quote unquote, renewable energy into our grid, and then everything will be fine. Uh, but then also, but then there's, there's also a tendency of like, you, you need to really sacrifice you as an individual, you know, you, you, you're so, you know, uh, consumeristic and you need to sacrifice. And, and so there's kind of like this both dour uh, strain and, and this, this kind of techno utopian strain. Uh, yeah. And both of those, you know, I, I think, you know, we're in agreement here that both those are problematic. One, because, you know, we, we you know, we can't maintain our, our current energy and materials throughput um, globally, but especially, you know, in, in the distribution that, that we've seen it up until now, you know, the, the vast un unequal distribution of those things. And, but two, you know, it, it, the, the vision put forward to address these things doesn't have to be dour. It can be actually quite joyful and reconnecting with a sense of place and with each other and with, you know, with ecology um, and, and all of these things. Um, and, you know, and then of course you, you get things like the, there was recently a Chobani ad for like a solar punk <laughs> Chobani ad, you know, and it was kind of, if you didn't know the context, it was kind of like, oh, this is kind of a beautiful vision, but it's a- It's something that I, I did use, uh, the visuals of which I did use, but now I'm a bit more critical of. Yeah, exactly. And so- I then, think it's easy to get caught up in, in those sort of visuals, you know? But I mean, some of the things presented are definitely impractical, like like a localized sort of, I think one of the clips was like a localized rain shower right. or something like that. And some kind of like really high tech water filtration system, which is like a whole thing. Right, right. And so, yeah, so it definitely, well, it had, you know, it was like kind of a greenwashing, you know, kind of a, a private, large corporate kind of, um, uh, you know, what's the word, uh, you know, um, uh, I can't think of the word, um, basically taking taking uh, aesthetic vision and, and using it for, you know, to sell to sell more products. Right, right? Co-optation. Co-optation, that's exactly what I, I think. I um, yeah. well, And I agree with that. However, I don't think, I, I don't necessarily, I'm partially because I fell for it in a sense myself, like not fully, but I did kind of fall in love with the visuals a bit. Um, 
I think part of the reason I don't fault people for it is because we're so starved of hopeful visuals that people will people have latched on to the sort of scraps that we've gotten from, you know, well, the corporation didn't make the animation. They hired an animation studio to make it, but you know, um just it, it really goes to show that we're so lacking in um positive visuals in present day that well, actually gone to commercials from yogurt companies, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Um, well, this this might be a good segue. You mentioned, you know, kind of oftentimes there's kind of a techno-utopian bent or, or, or you know, the proposal of technologies that might not even be appropriate um, when, you know, a, a, you know, a lower tech option might be more appropriate. And this this might feed into kind of you've talked about on the channel uh, of degrowth. Um and there's a lot of people who I think uh, are degrowthers, but they've um, they don't really like the name degrowth because it implies that you know they would say that well we want to grow in other ways we want to grow in human connection you know we want to grow in say human you know equality we want to we want to grow our ecological base through kind of regenerative practices uh, you know and they would agree that hey we we probably we, we definitely need to reduce our throughput, our linear throughput. Um, but they, they, you know, they have kind of a knee jerk reaction against the term degrowth itself. I'm, before we get into like what degrowth is, do you have any thoughts about that of like the branding of, of degrowth? Do, do you think it's a good branding or do you think it could be improved? Yeah. Um, me personally, I've definitely felt that way as well. And I understand the arguments on both sides. I understand the need for um, something that is confrontational in terms of terminology that, that forces us to confront um, the sort of blind acceptance of economic growth as just like a baseline, everybody's ultimate good sort of thing. Um, but then at the same time, and so I'm, at the same time, I also feel as though um, it just falls into the same trap that I've I've been talking about, where we get into this habit of just criticizing and talking about the problems and what's wrong and focusing on those things. And instead of, which is demobilizing, to be quite frank, rather than focusing on change, on um, proposals, on proposing a different vision, which is why I say so often on my channel, it's opposed and propose if you're just opposing if you're putting forth yourself as just standing against something you're just gonna look like you know just a loud critic with nothing to back it up what you want is you want to push the conversation forward you want to put people in a position where instead of shrugging their shoulders and saying yeah well it sucks but i mean what alternative is there you want them to be like oh so this is the alternative Right, right. And so that's why I'm I'm more of a, an advocate for you know using terms like post growth, buen vivir, that kind of thing. Right. Right. It it, it seems it just it just occurred to me that it seems like degrowth is kind of like this confrontational kind of stance and then maybe Which has so, its place, definitely. Which has its place, yeah. So the the proposed and opposed. So the the saying degrowth is kind of the oppositional position and then something like solar punk 
then brings in the you know pr propositional vision of yeah this is actually something that we can work towards with you know with joy and uh enthusiasm yep yeah interesting um well i guess a a way i guess um entry into this discussion of degrowth is uh, and I think people oftentimes confuse this, you know, people often when they hear degrowth, they, you're saying, oh, so you just want this kind of major recession. And we know that in a capitalist economy, recession usually hits the working class and the poor the hardest, um, you know, whereas maybe a super wealthy billionaire maybe has to give up one or two, you know, one or two of their many yachts or something. Uh, but, you know, uh, for the most part, it's the it's the poor and working class who who, who, who face, you know, bear the brunt of it and, you know, they don't get bailed out like uh, others do. Um, and they'll say, oh, that's so you just you're just advocating for a recession, which we have these traumatic memories of. Um, do you want to talk about kind of what kind of the proposition of degrowth is and, and, and how it differs from from that reaction? Sure. Um, I'll start by by addressing the reaction to degrowth. Um, my whole thing is with people's reaction to it, the criticisms of it is that the vast majority of cases, the people who are um criticizing it, are either criticizing it from a place of dishonesty or criticizing it from a place of ignorance. Because a lot of the critiques that are brought up for for degrowth are things that are directly addressed by the critiques and the proposals that degrowth presents. Um, it bears repeating: degrowth is not austerity. You know, degrowth, and I mean, it's right on the degrowth website. It means transforming societies to ensure environmental justice and a good life for all within planetary boundaries. It's about critiquing the global capitalist system that pursues growth at all costs, causing human exploitation and environmental destruction. Degrowth is about a radical redistribution and re of you know the of the wealth that exists now and a reduction in the material size of the global economy, which is built upon this idea of economic growth and production and consumerism for the sake of it, and shifting towards common values, towards care, towards solidarity, towards autonomy. Um, degrowth, as one of its most essential goals, is striving for a self-determined life and dignity for all. Um a society and an economy sustains the natural basis of life, um, an extension of democratic decision-making. So I think when people who may only be able to conceive of things in terms of policy proposals and not necessarily in terms of, you know, mass mobilization and bottom-up organizing and uh, social revolution, when they think degrowth, they think, oh, well, you know, the politicians are just going to, make us all downsize and 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 force us to struggle or whatever and it's like the whole the whole vision and proposal of degrowth is so contrary to what everybody is putting forward in the mainstream political sphere they would not want to touch such a proposal with a 10-foot pole there is no real radicalism in parliamentary politics 
Um, and so that sort of vision, what degrowth will require, would be a bottom-up mass mobilization of people. And when you have that bottom-up mass mobilization of people, you have people directly involved in decision-making, you have people directly involved in the transformation and the social revolution. Um, and they're not going to go through all that just to make their lives worse. They're doing it to make their lives better, to make to create a better life for all of us to enjoy. Uh, I mean, as we've seen, we've known about climate change for so long, but politicians have not done what it would take. Capitalists have ensured that nothing will be done that will actively threaten their interests. Um, and degrowth is saying, well, you know, screw your interests. We are going to pursue the interests of the people and of the earth. And that is the focus of it. And I think getting caught up in complete misrepresentations um, or misunderstandings of it is just, it's unfortunate and it's, it's disappointing to see. Do you think that there's, is, is there, is the degrowth movement unified? And, and by, by that, I mean, uh, is there kind of a, a split between kind of a more statist planned management form of kind of top down form of degrowth and, you know, more of a bottom up uh, deliberative uh, form of degrowth? Do you see that or, is, or, 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 or not? I, I'm just curious your thoughts on that. I think, um, I'm certainly like a newcomer to the degrowth scene. I mean, I've known about it for years, but I've only really started uh, exploring it further in the past few months. Um, so I wouldn't really be able to speak on, because um, I haven't read as much literature to be able to say that, you know, um, this and this author is more on the statist side, this and this author is more on the non side. I know there are certainly statist um, approaches to degrowth, people who, sort of pursue that but even in that they they really do try to emphasize um the masses um and of course they're the more revolutionary sort of bottom-up approaches um such as myself that would emphasize that we cannot rely on those institutions to um go against their own interests and liberate us we must liberate ourselves we must work to liberate the planet yeah yeah kind of a broad broad question um in terms of kind of theories of of change and prefiguration and you know when you know uh like 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 kind of the conditions you know when the conditions are are ripe so to speak do, do you think that like say ecological collapse or, or climate change do you think it has to get much worse before the conditions are right? Or do you think that the conditions can be right sooner in order to be more kind of proactive in terms of, you know, this 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 revolutionary change that, that, that you're talking about? I read recently that um, the possibility of revolution is not based on the dynasty of the circumstances that people are placed in, because much like a frog in boiling water, I know it's an analogy that is not bad out in reality, but much like a frog in boiling water, um, people can adapt and adjust even the worst of circumstances. Um, they will sit and they will boil if necessary. What really um, pushes people to action is not necessarily how bad the situation is. 
but more so whether they've been able to evaluate that they have a chance of success, of succeeding in their aims, that they have, that they have a vision of what they want to see changed and that they believe that they can execute that change successfully. Of course, that evaluation may not always live up to reality. And of course, there have been many mass mobilizations that have ended in failure. But we've also seen, you know, large populations that vastly outnumber their oppressors um, just continuing to live with oppression because... You know, I mean, the working class vastly outnumbers the 1%, vastly outnumbers the capitalist class. And yet we we will sit and continue to deal with these circumstances, deal with this, you know, austerity, deal with um, recession, uh, deal with the deprivation of our quality of life. Because, you know, we, we just, we don't see a vision, we don't see a path of success. We've so been beaten down. And so I think that, what it will take is not waiting for the situation to get worse. What it will take is showing people, demonstrating to people through preferative politics that there is another way and that we can develop a new way of life, that new way of life is better and that our, this old way of life is holding us back from achieving that. When you, when somebody feels as if they're being held back or, or limited, when once we could see, once they had a taste of what could be, even the barest bones of what could be, um, I think that is far more motivating than just, oh, well, the price of bread went up again or the price of gas went up again. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to make rent and I don't know if I'll be able to eat dinner tonight, that kind of thing. Mm. I think we need more than that. I think we need a vision and a strategy. Right, right. What what's um, we we've talked about um, you know we've we've touched on a little bit of kind of anarchist prefiguration and solar punk and, and degrowth. What's what's really at kind of the 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 tip of your interest right now? The, the thing that's that's really most exciting to you and, and thinking about and also in, uh, in in doing is there is there kind of like or maybe this could be phrased as the next set of videos that you're hoping to put out or you know, next set of kind of processes um, that you're engaged with. Um, do you want to, I don't know, do, do you care to to speak sure. on what's freshest, what's what's most vital, seems most vital to you right now? Right now, um, I really want to explore the uh, process of decolonization further. Um, I believe decolonization of um, our minds, of our landscapes, of our places, we have a vital aspect of social revolution. And so I believe understanding decolonization will be important uh, and pushing that conversation in um, monarchic directions also be important because I think a lot of the way that decolonization has been conceived is just, you know, formal political independence, independent states, that kind of thing. And having lived in a post-colonial nation, I've seen that, that has done, you know, formal political independence has not decolonized us uh, symbolically, spatially, you know, administratively, socially, nothing. Um, and so a lot more needs to be done in in that respect. And something I want to look into more uh, in, in the coming year. I also want to continue to drill more into the practical side of things um, in terms of how we pursue, um, how we shape our like social relationships, how we organize politically, um, how we approach our movements. Um, and then I also want to continue to look into 
history as I always have, because uh, um, I find it very fascinating. I want to look more into the ways that we can transform and develop new economies, draw inspiration from economies of old. And uh, yeah, and I'd like to reveal as well that I'm I'm, I'm working on a video on um on uh, the the working title for now is Solar Punk City Planning. Mm, okay. Nice. Nice. Um, are there? Uh, you said you 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 like to look into kind of the history of kind of successful uh, anarchic kind of experiments in the past. Um, are there any in particular that that you draw special inspiration from? Of you know of just things that have uh, movements that have been really successful and and that you can draw that you draw inspiration from. So for me, I um. I, I definitely use the term anarchic as opposed to anarchist because I draw inspiration from all, all sorts of um, situations and also organizations, movements that are necessarily anarchist, but do have broadly anarchic elements within them. Um, and by anarchic, I mean, you know, broadly horizontal, egalitarian, directly democratic, um, elements of, you know, free association, um, and resistance to hierarchical forms of organization, um, if not outright abolition of such forms of hierarchy. Um, and I, I, I draw some inspiration from these Apatistas, of course. I think they were one of my major driving forces. I think the Spanish, uh, Spanish Revolution was another um interesting uh, experiment and also though not necessarily anarchic uh lately i have been looking to the maroons um and maroon societies um as just a sort of an inspiration in terms of their refusal to cooperate their abandonments their escape and their resistance to the you know globe-spanning colonial empires um, that existed in their period of resistance and how some of them have endured to this day. Mm. Nice, nice. Um, curious what um, what else, uh, besides what we've covered so far, um, are there other topics that uh, you want to explore together? Um, I suppose I, as a sort of a, a fun closing question, where do you um, where do you see this decade going? Hmm. Wow. <laughs> well, um, I know a very fun question to ask. Yeah. Um. Well, I'll preface it by saying that uh, I I don't know, and I try not to I, I try not to be overly certain about the future. Uh, but Likewise. with that said, uh, I think that in this next decade, we're probably I mean I I can you know mainly speak about kind of the United States context. 
Um, I think that we're going to start seeing energy shocks to the system. Uh, I, I think that the energy return on investments of a lot of the fossil fuel extraction is going to be start going down. Uh, and I don't think that you know, the alternatives in terms of solar voltaic and wind turbines and hydroelectric and nuclear are, I don't think that they're going to cover uh, the, you know, completely cover the deficit. And so I think that there are going to be these energy shocks, which will ripple out throughout the system, right? Because it's connected to not just operational energy of, you know, lighting, you know, things like that, but also the whole economy, right? Industrial processes, um, food production i think i think coupled with that i think food production is going to become much more central in people's kind of salience landscape where suddenly uh the food coming showing up in the supermarket and the prices and that's you know that, that people see for them suddenly there's going to be just more insecurity uh in terms of food availability. And so there, I think there's going to be a lot, um, there's going to start to be more concern about localized food production. And I, I think, you know, more people in the United States context, at least, you know, it's, it's only like one or 2% of the population at this point is engaged with agriculture. And I think that's going to have to change, right? I just think many more people are going to have to be involved with food production at some at some scale, whether it's urban agriculture, you know, growing, growing things, you know, on apartment decks and on rooftops and uh, things of that nature, as well as suburban lawns being ripped up and planted with uh, edibles, uh, as well as, you know, just more uh, people involved with the land. Now, something I'm not certain about is the accessibility, how accessible that will be to to people who want to to engage with the food production, right? So we have a very kind of concentrated ownership structure of land, you know, where you have a few big players, uh, large scale farmers, and a lot of young people, especially where I am, a lot of young people want to get into food production and agriculture, but they just can't get on any land. And so I think that there's going to be rising conflicts over promoting access to to land um and you know hopefully there will be responses you know that some of which i'm hopeful about one is like the uh, community land trust movements uh or you know cooperative movements where you know figuring out how we can get people access to land um without necessarily you know without them needing to be able to afford you know, at this point, uh, just the absorbent prices, you know, uh, of of kind of land, you know, the commodified land structure that we see today. And so I think, yeah. I think that's going to become much more central. Um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, it, it happens to be that's my central, like one of my central interests are food systems. Um, and, and so it's, it tends to be just what I what I think about a lot. But um, yeah, I think I, I, I think I think especially in the United States, people have taken food for granted um, and, and that's going to change. And then last last thing here, you know, in, in terms of conflicts and over over access, I think 
I think just the ne the necessity of building up the skill sets, right? You know, the, hopefully the development of like field schools of, you know, developing the skills of say agroecology or permaculture uh, to to actually not just get on some land, but actually know what to do, you know, do with it and how to how to steward the land well and also feed, you know, uh, feed the local populations. And so I, I think I just think that's going to become more central. I agree. I agree. And like you, I, I, I shouldn't make um, any broad predictions or proclamations, um, but I, I do see access to land as like a major uh, issue, especially considering, um, I mean, millennials and, you know, now Gen Z are adults and adults without adults that are largely landless or largely uh unable to access you know it's one of the basics mm -hmm. of you know life um and the community land trust movement is, some, is something that i'm also very much inspired by something i intend to pursue in my own personal life um but i definitely see that sort of frustration and i think it goes beyond just lack of housing and stuff uh, or rising prices of food i think people are just getting increasingly frustrated by um you know what craver called bs jobs by really just work culture in general um i see a lot of frustrations bubbling up from that as and as see especially in my generation a lot of people um sort of pulling back from that sort of hustle culture and um, having experienced things like work from home, um, how that's going to affect things as well. Um, and I think part of the whole work from home experience is the fact that because people have demonstrated that they've been able to work from home, um, a lot of companies are going to take those jobs and put them where they would be cheaper because if you can work from home, you know, you can work from anywhere. Um, and so I think there's going to be even greater losses in jobs, um, gains in jobs in, in poorer countries. Um, but speaking for Trinidad, at least, um, one of the major call center companies, they, they constantly bleed workers because the work conditions are so depressingly horrible. Um, I mean, the cost of living is just getting worse and worse. Prices just across the board are going up. Crime is really threatening people's lives and livelihoods. Um, and yeah, it's really what a time to be alive. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 simultaneously kind of a horrifying time to be alive, but also a very exciting time to be alive. And I I don't always know how to how to you know relate to both of those kind of simultaneous uh feelings feelings about it but i guess that's the purpose of the podcast <laughs> right right e exactly exactly yeah yeah one of the things we emphasize a lot on the podcast is you know figuring out uh given you know any any given person's kind of uh access to resources to land 
you know, what are ways that we as individuals and, and communities and say, you know, larger localities, say even bioregions, you know, how can we uh, support each other to start taking agency wherever it lies? You know, whether it's as, again, as small as say you live in a, a dense apartment complex, you know, what are, what are forms of kind of self-production that you can engage with up and until you have the ability to kind of spread your wings, right? So whether it's like, you can't grow anything, but perhaps you could do a lot of post-processing, like you can make bread, you can do fermentation, you can, you know, there's ways to kind of build up even at a, a very small scale, like local autonomies and, you know, and the more kind of economic independence you can build at whatever scale, the more political independence perhaps hopefully can, can come down the road. Um, yeah. and so it's, it's like, it's, it's like two parts of the question of like, how do we expand access, but also how do we maximize the, this kind of, individual and collective agency at wherever you find yourself um where, wherever you happen to be you know you have you have a, a six by six plot of land in you know a tiny little backyard okay well there's a lot actually that you can do with that right? yeah and even if it's not if it's marginal in terms of say feeding your family uh it's it, it you're you know it's building up the patterns it's, it's this prefiguration of you know, the skills that when the conditions change, um, you know, like it's just, we're all bursting at the seams, ready to, you know, to kind of uh, expand these uh, practices um, and these kind of, these kinds of mentalities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, uh, you asked me a question about like the next 10 years and I could really speak up in the United States context. Uh, what about what about in your context? What do you do you have besides what you've said already? You kind of mentioned the, you know, what's what's happening in Trinidad and Tobago, but are any other kind of hesitant predictions in the next 10 years that, that you foresee? Um, well, I, I see. Um, I mean, Brain drain has been a continuous uh, force in many post-colonial countries, especially in the Caribbean. Um, so I, I do see a lot of, uh, you know, emigration. Um, combined with, of course, the immigration of Venezuelan refugees, um, I think it's going to create, and of course, wherever there's migration, there's an element of xenophobia. Um, I think it's. I I hope that there isn't a um, uh, greater upsurge in in that sort of uh, prejudice, but I I do think that is a possibility. Um, but just looking at the way that that things are going, um. And just the incompetence that the government so regularly exhibits, and just the way that our system has been set up, it's effectively two parties, and both are not uh both are completely out of touch and not seen as reflective of the um the needs of the population um and yet 
I suppose as a consequence of our education, people still look to parliamentary politics as a solution. But I think there will be a, a push, hopefully, towards looking locally and sort of at least writing off, if not actively opposing um, the government's continued mismanagement of our country. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> are there, is there a, an active kind of uh, scene of revolutionary politics um, in your country? Uh, is there... Unfortunately, no. No. Okay. Uh, there used to be a very active Caribbean left, mm -hmm. um, but it's post, I think it was, it was really, it really reached its peak in, in the 70s, but it's kind of been on the decline since then. And um there aren't any outspoken um uh, or mainstream voices um on the left and there also isn't a very large there, there is a subculture but there's not a very large um subculture of you know left politics and i think a lot of the more radical and revolutionary people have been uh, are sort of scattered across the country so there's not like a a major sort of network uh with strong ties in place unfortunately yeah yeah let me know if this if this question is too personal but how is how is uh like in in terms of your interactions with your family and say friends growing up um how how is you know how have those relationships changed are they do they see you as kind of just crazy or are they kind of on board or, or something else? <laughs> um, I think for the most part, I think people are receptive to my critiques and to my proposals and whatnot. But while they may agree, um, that doesn't necessarily translate to action or to their own pursuit of exploring these politics. Um, I think part of that is just exhaustion. I think people as a whole are just really, really tired. Um, and so they don't necessarily have the energy to engage with and to pursue these things further. Um, but I mean, for the most part, I've, I've been, I've gotten nothing but agreement uh, in terms of my critiques and uh, my ideas even from, you know, family members who may be more on the conservative side of things, as they would still agree with a lot of the proposals that I would push forward. Um, but it's just translating that into, into action mm -hmm. has been a, a struggle. Yeah, yeah. What about, um, uh, like we talked, we mentioned a bit about like permaculture, agroecology. Is there, do you, is there a kind of, uh, a movement or kind of a do you see a growing interest in in these kind I of, do. of I, I do see a growing interest in permaculture and that is thanks to um the folks at wasamaki ecosystems i think they're one of the me they're the main uh, if not the only uh permaculture site at least accessible to the public um and they have you know various courses 
courses and classes and stuff. And I do see budding interest in that. Um, and they have been able to develop their their reach and stuff. And so, you know, I think that I think that that is something that has potential to grow even further because, you know, I think most people have had some semblance of a kitchen garden and they want to like develop that more with the prices and of everything going up. Right. Okay. So that's, that's interesting because, you know, many parts of the United States don't have lost even that, right? Like in many places, in the United States, there's a household, uh, you know, there's a, a neighborhood uh, organization called HOA where they actually right. inhibit, uh, you know, like, gardens or or kind of local food production more generally maybe backdoor chickens or backyard chickens or something like that uh luckily where i live i live in kind of the southern appalachians uh and and there's still there's still a culture here of kind of local food production you you still see a lot of folks with their you know uh backyard or front yard gardens uh or or small scale kind of livestock production and and that's you know for me it's it's very hopeful for me to, in terms of being here is that it's like you don't like the, the cultural memory is there and so um that seems uh, it's i'm glad to hear you know that 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 it, unlike many parts of the united states that hasn't gone away for for you for you all as well um and, and it can be kind of built upon and expanded upon yeah yeah, I think that there are pockets that just need to be expanded. Um, sparks and, you know, seeds just need to be developed further. Yeah, yeah. Is there like a a particular, you would say, bottleneck? Like, is it like in the United States, I, I, I think, you know, for many people, the bottleneck is lack of access to land, the desire is there. And, and for many people they have land, uh, but they have no desire. And there's this kind of weird mismatch. Um, is, is there in, in uh, you know, where you live is, is, do you see it more as to, for expanding is the challenge more lack of access or, or lack of desire or both? Well, I don't want to generalize necessarily, but I think one of the trends that I do see mm -hmm. is that people may have an interest in you know growing their own food in you know sort of developing the food autonomy and even in developing community but the issue is that because of the way the infrastructure is set up because of the culture of work that has developed um in some cases people are spending upwards of three hours a day on their commute alone you know um traffic is just utterly ridiculous and People are so exhausted by work and by their commute to and from work, they just don't have the time or the energy to, you know, pursue such projects. And that that's at least for the working homeowners that I know of. Um, there are of course they um there of course I think a lot of young adults and young people as a whole who, you know, mid to late twenties even early 30s, mid 30s and stuff who, you know, still live in with their parents. And I mean, that's, that's, that's normal here. At least we do tend to stay uh, in our family homes um, at least until we get married. And even sometimes after we get married as well, a lot of multi-generational homes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
but because you know housing is so inaccessible um, a lot of people are renting um, if they do move out of the home and because they're renting they don't have as much freedom to um develop the land in ways that uh that they might necessarily want to you know they don't have that freedom so that's part of it as well right yeah yeah all of those uh seem resonant here as, as well i mean yeah there there are a lot of people i think the third option that that you mentioned is that the desire is there um, but e either the access isn't there or they're just the bandwidth, right? Like you're working two jobs, minimum wage jobs, and and just, you know, in the, how the economy is structured, uh, you know, it, it's just, you're exhausted by the end of the day. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, similar. I, it's, I think it's, I think it's similar in some ways, in some ways here. Um, well, Andrew, this is, I, I've really enjoyed this. Um, uh, are there any uh, last words, I guess, um, or last topics that that you want to cover? I want to give you kind of the final the final platform. Sure, I just want to reemphasize what I try to emphasize in all my videos, which is to remember, you know, all power to all people. Um, and... I want to encourage people to really explore the ways that they can lend their skills and their interests to, um, you know, social revolution, to changing um, our world. Of course, no one person can change the world, but, you know, at least we can change our families, change our communities, and that can have a ripple effect. And just by demonstrating uh, a different way of doing things. Like I was saying earlier, we can inspire, uh, um, giving people that taste can inspire through the pursuit of action, of change. Uh, so we need to break out of the cycle of activism that a lot of us have fallen into, which just, you know, uh, circular, you know, mutual aid projects and protests and bail funds and that kind of thing. And look into ways we can build things that are more lasting. Um, ways that we can set ourselves up and really create beacons um, and pillars within a community that can draw people in and can develop our autonomy and our strength as a collective. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, well, thank you, Andrew. I really appreciated this. I uh, really enjoyed this. Um, and Likewise. yeah, I uh, hope, hope we can stay connected and continue the conversation in the future. Sure. Um, for those interested, you can check out my videos and stuff on youtube.com slash andrewism. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at underscore St. Drew. Great. Yeah. And we'll, uh, if you missed any of those links, we will include them in the show notes. Um, all right. Well, until next time, take care. All right, Jason. Take care. Ooh.